Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My guest today is Jason Vitug. Jason, I'm holding in my hands your book called You Only Live Once, The Roadmap to a Financial Wellness and a Purpose, excuse me, The Roadmap to Financial Wellness and a Purposeful Life. So, if your subtitle and the slogan of my show are that uh, are that similar, we're going to have a good interview today. Welcome. <laughs> uh, hi, Josh. Thank you so much for having me on. Excited to be here. <laughs> so we're going to talk about your book, but I'd first like to kick it off. Um, tell us a little bit about your story, especially as it relates to money. Where did you start uh, and what's been your path uh, up to now and some of your adventures currently? Yeah, I think um, the the most interesting part for many people is that I started my relationship with money um, with, you know, working, uh, cleaning toilets, serving drinks, uh, and found myself four years later in the boardroom, uh, making a six figure salary, moving from New Jersey where I was raised to, uh, living out in Palo Alto, California. Okay. So I'm going to stop you there because, um, you, you, that sounds interesting. That's good marketing speak, but I want to know more specifics. Uh, what type of work were you doing when you started? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I started as a bartender. Okay. Um, I started as a bartender in Newark International Airport. Okay. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it all really started with because of the fact that um, um, I never had the conversation about money with my parents. And I think for most people, we never have, um, you know, it's, it's so much easier for my parents to talk about the birds and the bees, talk about politics and religion than it was to talk about money. Um, but they were forced to talk about money when I was 17, uh, when they, they sat me down and said, Jason, we can't afford to send you to school. Uh, that, that to me was really devastating because, you know, I was, I did all the right things. I, I worked really hard. I played sports. I was class president, uh, honor society, what have you. Um, and, but my parents, like many others that I've met, like, you know, they made enough uh, to disqualify me for financial aid, but didn't have the resources or the means to uh, to send me to school. Um, and, and by so school, you mean college? To college, correct. Okay. And uh, so when all my friends were going to their freshman year, uh, I dis- I had to uh, to start working. And so at, so at 18, uh, that's how I found myself bartending, to raise enough uh, money, to save enough money to attend the first year's college. Is it legal um, for a bartender to be 18 years old while serving alcohol? In New Jersey, yes, as long as there is no money exchanged. So um, I was working at first class lounges uh, in Newark International Airport. So you can imagine, I grew up in Elizabeth. <laughs> I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is uh, the fourth largest city. It's an inner city, and um, so you can imagine. Uh, here I am in the first class lounge, serving people like business people, uh, those who can afford to spend $5,000, $10,000 on a seat to fly uh, anywhere around the world. And, uh, but then, like, no, we're struggling to, to find $5,000 to send me to college. 
so that was one of like the eye-opening experience of how little I really had and how much others did. And so that reinforced kind of this, this mentality of, of not, uh, uh, not having the means and wanting to, um, wanting to make money. But, uh, that, that, that pretty much led to, to, uh, to me spending everything I earned just to, uh, to tell others, Hey, um, you know, I'm not that poor. I, I'm not that, uh, uh, struggling with money. And, you know, so every, every chance I got to, uh, to spend cash, I did. So what, what actually, so you didn't go to school then you, uh, you continued working and then you got another job in California. What actually happened that took you across the country? Yeah. So, um, I was going, eventually when I did get to school, um, I went to Rutgers university. I, I was, uh, I was going for finance. So I thought that, you know, everyone, everyone I was seeing was in business and the way for me to, to become successful and to make money, I needed to be in business. And so I, I found myself in, in the business school, uh, studying finance and I, there's no way that I could, um, you know, go from, from serving drinks as a bartender, uh, to making the money that I saw people were making that were entering, uh, the first and business class lounges. And so I said, well, I need to get into banking. And I started uh, my banking career as a teller. Um, and I worked really hard, uh, and, and um, tried to learn as much as I, I could and that got me the opportunity to, to grow. So in a very short period of time, um, I was being promoted uh, very quickly. And so my income was rising. So I was making at the time minimum wage. And in Jersey, it was around $7. Um, and uh, then I had the opportunity to, you know, from going as a teller, I became a customer service rep and a customer service rep and assistant branch manager, all within a very short time frame. And I've always had this philosophy, I mean, which started in, you know, going to the public school system that I wanted to learn as much as I could. And I wanted to kind of pick the brains of some of the uh, and I look back now, it's like some of the smartest people, which ended up having having to be uh, either my work colleague or uh, my supervisor, manager uh, and things like that. And they would just ingrain certain skills that enabled me to uh, be able to perform a job level that was higher than what I was being paid for. And that also exposed me to a, a network that enabled me to, to get promoted. And I mean, my, my story goes all around uh, the place, but eventually uh, I found the credit union world. Um, I went in as uh, in the branches uh, in the credit union and I wanted to get into marketing. Um, I always had this creative streak uh, about me, and eventually, uh, four years from starting in the banking industry as a teller, I found myself in the boardroom for a credit union out in Silicon Valley. How much were you earning in that job in Silicon Valley? Uh, I was earning $100,000 when I started in 2009. So to go from uh, $7 an hour to uh, $100,000. I mean, that goes from, what, 15000 a year to $100,000. Pretty fantastic, man. Congrats. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's quite a story and an achievement in and of itself to do that in four years. Yeah, thank, thank you. So <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I go and I sit back and, and I, I can spend hours and days talking about the, the processes and the nuances of, 
of going from being a teller to uh, sitting in the boardroom in four years. Uh, it did take a, it did take a lot of work, um, and then as I mentioned, it had a lot to do with just increasing my value for the time that I was spending at work, and also the network of people that I was meeting. And uh, interesting enough, like early on in in life, uh, I learned the power of the people who you surround yourself with, and so I wasn't one of those uh, one of those worker bees that. Uh, we're saying it's not my job. I'm not getting paid for it. Uh, it's like, well, you know, maybe it's something that I can learn and will make me more valuable. Um, and and so that that in in a sense, when I think about growing up with with not having the luxuries of of life, that that was really um, uh, a really good thing for me to have. I've always loved the aphorism. If you do more than what you're paid to do, the day is going to come eventually when you're paid more for what you do. <laughs> but you got to start. You got to. You've got to always start that process. You can't expect to be paid more because compensation always comes after work is done. <laughs> you got to sow the seeds first. So, uh, so you, you're at this credit union in California. Uh, what next? Yeah. So um, I was in I was in the credit union in California, and I was there as VP of marketing and business development. Um, so I was in charge of growing the credit union. Um, and the credit union had this field of membership uh, all across the United States. And they're pretty stagnant for some time. Um, and it just has a really interesting side note. Uh, when I was up for the job for uh, this, this VP position, I was up against two other individuals um, who had more experience. Uh, who had fancier degrees, and um, uh, I remember going and presenting and talking about my my idea to help uh, grow awareness for the credit union and help grow its membership. Um, it was it all it was all focused on on education. It was all focused on helping people like me. When I saw myself in the mirror, knowing that I didn't have the resources and the means, and that that this financial institution um, uh, can can help those like me uh, who weren't uh, educated and or had access to other types of products. And so I was hired. And I remember my my CEO telling me, eventually we became friends, that uh, they chose passion over experience. And uh, when when I was in front of uh, the, uh, the board of directors and the other executives, uh, they saw they, they saw this this unpolished uh, but very passionate kid, and I put that in air quotes, um, that had this big, bold idea uh, to revolutionize how they were marketing and, and growing the credit union. And so that's how I was selected uh, to, be, uh, to be part of the executive team. And I had the go-ahead to really do something really radical, which was to talk about basic personal finance. And, and when you think about this, uh, at the height of the Great Recession, um, that's in 2009, 2010, uh, when I joined that credit union out in, in Menlo Park, California, everyone was still talking about retirement. Everyone was still talking about um, investing and the future. And I knew from my personal experiences and the experiences of those that I became friends with and, and the jobs that I had, that we were struggling day to day and we were struggling with basic personal finance, with basic fundamentals about banking, uh, budgeting, uh, credit reports, credit scores. And I really wanted to go back to that, to, to the basics. And 
With that, uh, we were extremely successful uh, in getting our sponsor. Uh, the credit union uh, wasn't open to everyone. You had to work for a specific company, this particular credit union I worked for. Uh, and at the time, it was Tyco, ADT, uh, TE. And so uh, they they realized that there was a benefit uh, to this, this financial information that we were sharing, the seminar that I created, um, all around financial motivation, all around um, really basic information. And it became the most widely requested seminar series of this Fortune 500 company all across the country. Um, and everyone was dumbfounded. It's like, you know, we, we, they hire and they pay so much money to get uh, the big guys to come in and talk about the 401ks and et cetera. And those things were important. But I knew that if you were struggling to pay your rent or that car payment or that credit card, um, or debt collectors are calling you, chances are there's no way that you can um, uh, pay towards your retirement into that 401k plan. Uh, there's no way that you are performing at 100% at the workplace because you're thinking about your finances. And so uh, we grew very quickly uh, in the three and a half years that I was at the credit union. Um, so you're looking at when I joined, it was a $65 million asset credit union I left, it was at 110 million in assets. And because of uh, the successes that we've had in a very short period of time, um, the, the board of directors and my CEO sat me down and said, uh, Jason, uh, we'd like to uh, select you as the successor CEO of, uh, of the credit union and we'd like to put you into the path uh, of, uh, replacing, uh, my CEO when, uh, she would retire in a few years. And, uh, that gave me pause. <laughs> how old and were I you? Said, how old were you for that conversation? Uh, I was 28. Had you ever finished your college degree? Uh, yes. I finished my college degree before I, uh, I got out to California. Okay. So uh, at that po- at that point, I was like, uh, th- I was like, this is it. I made it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I got the uh, the American dream of making six figures and living in a really beautiful place um, and getting this fancy title. Uh, and but then I just kind of looked around the stuff that I was surrounded with. And at that point, living out in California, I was away from my family. I was away from my friends. Uh, they're all back in Jersey. And so I just looked around and, and I said, wow, is this what I worked for? <laughs> um, all this stuff uh, that, that filled my apartment in, uh, in Palo Alto, California. And so you're looking and, and thinking about uh, that I came from, from Elizabeth. Now I'm living in Palo Alto, California. Uh, when I gra- before I graduated high school, I, I lived in seven different houses. Uh, my parents, my family, we moved around a lot. Uh, we were a big family. Uh, uh, they had five kids and they're hardworking. They made sure that everything was paid for. So we never had to worry about money uh, and they never had to talk to us about money. And, uh, but I didn't have all the luxury stuff. I, instead of you know, getting Nikes, uh, we got the, I, th- I think it was like, uh, I don't even know if they make it like the Spaldings. They're, they're this, uh, these shoes that they could get for like $15, these sneakers. And I would get the hand-me-downs from my brother. And 
now I'm in Palo Alto. I'm in this apartment that's ex- too expensive. Uh, I think it was sixteen, a little over sixteen hundred dollars for a seven hundred square foot apartment in San Francisco, the San Francisco Silicon Valley Bay Area. So um, uh, quite expensive, and at a walk-in closet with with tags with their clothes, uh, I mean, clothes with their tags still on them, gadgets of things that I didn't use. And uh, I had two cars, a motorcycle, a pedal bike, uh, so what have you. And, and I would travel. I would travel and have those experiences. And, and at the end, I just said, okay, well, um, if I had to reassess the direction of my life uh, and my content, and and that being and being away from family for three and a half years and my friends and, and Jersey, um, and now being this having this offer uh, laid out to me, I wasn't quite sure if that was the the you know the path that I wanted to continue on, and and that's when I did the uh, the complete opposite. I resigned instead. <laughs> so that was dumb. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> so it, it's it's interesting, right? So uh, uh, it was. I just remember the look uh, on the faces of uh, these uh, uh, of the executives and as well as the board of directors saying, you know, you're you're in this upward career trajectory. Um, this is it. And and then I knew just something was missing and I wasn't quite sure what that what that missing part was. And I was equating success with all the things that I was purchasing and the fancy title. Um, and and so. So eventually, when I had that moment where um, I had this opportunity that I've wanted for a very long time, um, and I looked at my bank account, I looked at the things around me, and I was like, wow, this isn't reflective of, of success, I thought then, right? Um, and so I was saving, I was saving my 401k plan, I was saving, um, I was buying you know, the stock options for our parent company. Uh, T connectivity. So I was doing all these really good things for my future. Uh, but when you looked at my bank account, uh, you'd see uh, every payday, um, the funds that were there went went to bills and and I spent everything else on things just to keep me satisfied. And in the book, I, I, I would say that I was I continue to mindlessly consume and obsessively complain about my situation. And and I remember uh, having this conversation with my VP of finance and saying, I think I just need to make more money. Um, and, and so I was one of those individuals, whether through luck or whether through circumstance, I was every time I asked for a raise, I would get it and then some. Um, and so even before I decided to, uh, to quit uh, officially or resign uh, my position, uh, the, my my uh, the executive team, the CEO, and the board of directors offered to provide me down payment assistance to buy a home, and and I looked at this then right. It's like these are the golden handcuffs that people are talking about, um, and they want to keep me here. And I wasn't necessarily sure if this is what I want to continue on. And I thought I was at that moment. And I think for many of us, right, when we're in our mid to late twenties. Uh, we're, we're still just trying to discover who we are. Many people are success, successful and they're in that career. Uh, they're in that financial situation um, that they are extremely happy with. 
uh, and others and, and many others that I've met is that we're still trying to define our life. We're still trying to define our purpose, the meaning. And I thought that purpose and meaning all equated to the size of the income that I was making um, or that I was hitting these just financial milestones in terms of contributing to my 401k, contributing to uh, uh, different different things to set my life the w- and, and be able to live my life the way I wanted to live it when I was 70 years old. And all those thoughts all culminated to, to the moment where I said, I, um, uh, I quit. And quitting landed me the opportunity to uh, free myself from any work obligations. And in 2012, I found myself backpacking around the world. I went through 20 countries in 12 months, Southeast Asia, Central America, Western Europe. Um, and then I started having these conversations with people uh, who were telling me I was lucky, that I was American. Um, and individuals, and it didn't matter what part of the country, I was, uh, part of the world I was going to, whether it was Southeast Asia or uh, in Belize or in Portugal, they were saying, you're so lucky. Um, it's the land of opportunity. I remember I was having this conversation with this guy um, in a village in Dala, Myanmar. Uh, and he said to me, um, you know, are the streets paved with gold? And, and I thought he was joking. And the look in his eyes. And, and at that time in 2012, Myanmar, which is this c- country sandwiched by, I think it's uh, Bangladesh and Thailand, um, just opened up. They had a military junta uh, that had been in control and they closed the country to the world. And in 2012, they just started allowing Americans, those who are holding American passports to enter uh, more freely. And so I was one of the very few to, to, to get there. And and when people would look at you and, and um, they know you're different and they know that you're coming from uh, the United States, uh, they're, they're just bombarding me with questions about opportunity, about uh, the American dream. I mean, not in those contexts, but all around um, those subject matter. And here I was um, thinking to myself, uh, these people um, believe that we have tremendous opportunity in the United States, um, that people are, are able to just quit their jobs and backpack around the world that I did. And there's a point where all these conversations culminated to, to me going to another part of the country in Myanmar um, called Bagan. And I and it's a picture that has become really uh, synonymous with my brand and my image. I'm sitting on this eighth century temple, staring out of five thousand temples, pagodas, stupas on the horizon. And it was that moment where I said to myself, "I'm living my dreams." And where was everyone else? Um, and through that, that aha moment, um, I. I I took that through all the other countries I went through for that year and the other conversations that uh, impacted me. And I said, how did this guy who grew up uh, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, that everything stacked up against him, that had this horrible relationship with money, um, that was doing some of the right things, but not all the right things. How did I get from that point to, to saying no to the traditional path? to uh, being able to say 
um, no to a higher paying position, fancier title, and just go backpacking around the world without any plans um, of what's next when I came back. And I realized that was just, it was financial knowledge. It was, and, and, and I like to say that knowledge is power, but financial knowledge is life-changing. And being exposed in the banking industry, being exposed to experts, certified financial planners, financial advisors, and having conversations with people when I'm opening up their accounts or on taking their deposits or, or what have you in the branch, I was having these conversations with people who are handling their money very well and those who were struggling. And, and I could see people driving in with their fancy uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz or, or Range Rovers. And I would look in their bank account when they're making their deposit or opening up uh, their, their checking account. And I'll notice that there were no savings whatsoever or that they paid multiple numbers of, of uh, non-sufficient fund fees. And, and so it was that. And, and so through that process, when I got back in 2013, I wanted to understand what got me from where I was to where I am today. And, and again, it had a lot to do with just beginning to understand money, beginning to understand my relationship with money and addressing these money beliefs that stemmed from my relationship with money. Do you feel a little guilty um, while traveling? It's obviously, when you travel extensively, you see people who, as you say, they say that the roads are paved with gold in America, and here you are walking away from uh, from all that uh, to come and to, to, depending on how I uh, frame the question, to gawk at them or to experience their lifestyle. <laughs> did you feel Did you feel a little guilty uh, about walking away? You know, um, I did. And so something that, that, that I don't share as, as often, and I probably should. So when I left uh, in, in January of, I think it's, it was the 11th of 2012, um, to my first country, um, I went to the Philippines. I, went to, uh, I flew into Manila. And uh, the Philippines, it's a third world country. Um, it's a country that is growing. Uh, but it's a third world country. And I remember walking around and, and I'm part Filipino and um, and I saw people struggling and they were having, you know, um, when th- there is poverty in the U.S., but you haven't seen poverty until you've seen third world poverty um, and people living in slums they are living on top of each other. They're living by the riverbanks um, in these shanty uh, like homes. And it was really jarring for me. And, um, and so I remember I was flying from Manila uh, in the Philippines to another island, Cebu. And I, I went and I, bought, I, I purchased my ticket and I'm in the plane and I'm sitting down just staring out um, through the window. And all these thoughts, these emotions are rushing uh, into my body. And I've just been away. I've been out of the U S for two weeks. I was holding the, the handrails, right? The, uh, uh, so I'm holding them really tightly and I have my eyes closed and, and I'm thinking about, you know, uh, all the, all the images, the conversations that I was just having in that short two week time frame in the Philippines. And I remember closing my eyes and, and, uh, I was having a nervous breakdown and I go, God, 
um, did I make the right decision? And, and so at that point I realized, I was like, you know, did I make that right decision? And I decided, uh, when I landed and I went backpacking, um, uh, in Cebu, I was doing all the normal taking photos and going around, um, being a tourist. And as I was in Cebu, um, all of a sudden I see hordes of people running and screaming and I didn't know what was happening. And, uh, and I took a step back going, Oh my God, this is a riot. And, you know, coming from Jersey, coming from the things that I've seen, I'm like, okay, this must be a riot. And so I, I stand back and I let these people pass and all of a sudden motorcycles and cars are zipping, rushing by. And I'm there with my camera going, I don't know what's going on until someone stopped and said to me and looked at me and said, run tidal wave. And at that point I go, I start running and I'm looking behind me thinking like, you know, all these people that are running behind me, you know, where's the wave coming from? And then I'm in an island, you know, (laughs) so where is this wave and where am I supposed to go to? It was complete mayhem and chaos. And at that point, like I, I switched the, uh, the camera on and I, and I covered kind of the, the last moments of it where I said, maybe this is it. Um, and, and then, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm safe. I'm here talking to you. But I was in my hotel room and I would still feel the aftershock. So there was an earthquake that happened in a neighboring island. And because of what happened in Thailand and Indonesia with the tsunami, um, the swelling of the ocean for a bit caused a panic um, throughout kind of like uh, the, the, the islands in the middle part of the Philippines. And so people started text messaging and, and saying that there was a tidal wave that was coming. And so all of a sudden I had all these images uh, of what that could look like. And I thought, okay, well, I left this comfy job. Um, I'm having this nervous breakdown because I left a six-figure salary and people are struggling. And here I am like um, uh, exploring without a care in the world. And then now I'm going to die in a tsunami, uh, here in Cebu. And, um, everything, everything ended up being, being fine. And I got some, some fame cause I went and I posted this video on YouTube and the national news, uh, saw the video. And then all of a sudden they plastered my face on TV and so on the news people, they had American caught in tsunami. Uh, and so I had my little bout of my five minutes or 15 minutes of fame in the Philippines. But it was that moment when I closed my eyes. Um, and, and this was probably after midnight uh, in the hotel room. And I remember going, OK, God, I I, uh, I said I wanted an adventure. I didn't want the traditional path. And that was quite an answer <laughs> to uh, to that question. And, uh, from that point on, I said, I'm going to, uh, you know, throw my plans across. And, and that's how I ended up, you know, backpacking through, uh, through 20 countries in, in that 12 month time frame, and, and allow myself to open up and come to terms with, uh, the mindset that I had and the steps that I took to get me from, again, from where I was, to where I am today. So I want to get to the content of your book and what you actually teach. So just to summarize, you went on that trip, came back to the U.S., uh, I guess, uh, took a little bit of time to, to figure some things out, started working on uh, some of your personal finance projects. Uh, and then recently you've finished a 50-state tour this past summer uh, of teaching seminars on financial wellness. And then you've just recently published uh, the book, You Only Live Once. Is that a, a reasonably correct, concise summary of the last few years since your trip? 
That's absolutely it. That's what has transpired in the last three years. Okay. So you, based upon your experience, which you charted out, which in many ways, um, don't be offended, I think it's the perfect stereotypical millennial experience. Uh, (laughs) And I want to explore it because we are um, compatriots in terms of being of similar age. How old are you currently, Jason? 33. Okay, so you're two years older than I am. Uh, but this is kind of the experience that many of our generation faces. And uh, this is something that the reason I ask you about if you're guilty and the reason I'm asking you some of these probe, if you felt guilty, these probing questions is you and I might understand this uh, and perhaps many of our younger listeners will. But there are many people who, who hear this angst that you described, living in California, working, you know, being in line with a CEO who hear this kind of personal turmoil, angst, and, and just say, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, why do you, why do you not benefit? Why do you not take advantage of this? You can go visit your family, and you can, you can set some, you can set up a nice life. So I want to explore kind of the emotions of this a little bit, and also explore your advice uh, for others. So you've spoken with a lot of people all around the world, and, and you put a lot of research into your book. What is different about you and uh, our generation? that makes you approach money this way as compared to perhaps your parents or grandparents who would have been content to say, uh, I'm, I've got a great opportunity here at this credit union. I'm going to keep on working and doing good work here. I think we are a generation that was raised to believe that anything and everything was possible, that if we wanted something, we had to work really hard. And we can achieve it. We can achieve our dreams. We're the, the first generation uh, to say, if you have a dream, you can, you can live it. You can, you can have it. And our parents, the baby boomers, worked really, really hard um, to enable us to, to, to be able to live our, our dreams. And maybe they had to, um, and I have these conversations with baby boomers who say, yes, I sacrificed really hard. I worked tons of hours. I stayed at one or two jobs in my lifetime so I could provide food on the table. I could make sure that my kids went to college so they can have, uh, they can live their dream life. And what's really interesting when you talk about that point of contention is that, yeah, I'll, I'll hear some baby boomers saying, yes, you're an entitled generation. You're a generation that, um, that, that, uh, uh, like you, uh, you know, here you are, Jason, you, you, gradu- you graduated and you went to you had this fast, fancy job and you're you're making money more money than uh, what others would make uh, and and you turned it all around and said you know uh, forget this I'm gonna go uh, backpacking around the world and that really boils down to the values that our parents my parents instilled in me uh, my parents worked really hard and and they wanted to make sure that I was had the opportunity to uh, be able to enjoy life. Um, so they spent their time working to give their kids a better life. And so th- that value system, all relating to time. Um, and my parents worked um, all the time. And, and so, and, and like my brothers and sisters and I, we had to take care of ourselves. But it really had to do with this value of, of time, um, this belief that we can achieve um, and we can live the life of our dreams um, uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, these are things that we were taught by our parents, the baby boomers. And so when I hear this point of contention between baby boomers and millennials, Gen Y, um, I like to say that we are the product 
of our parents' hopes and dreams. So our parents have these hopes, they have these dreams, and they instilled them into us, and they, they created us. And so um, we are an entitled generation in the sense that we were told that if we go to college, we'll get a, a great job, and we'll be able to afford a house and, and start a family. And then for, for many of us, we were raised in, what, two, um, like the, the internet bust in the early uh, 2000, and then the housing crisis uh, in our formative years after college. And so uh, all of a sudden, we start saying, wait a minute, like this traditional path that they went on um, uh, doesn't really align with the values that they taught us. And, and so for many of us, that's how we were stressing and using our hard-earned dollars on experiences uh, than things. How does this approach uh, financial planning? Uh, how does this change financial planning? And let me give a little bit more background to the question. You, in your work in the credit union, you had some exposure to traditional financial planning. Uh, and now in your work of uh, you only live once and, and uh, the work that you've done of laying out how to approach financial planning, you've talked more you, – you're incorporating some of the more non-traditional aspects uh, and even in your own – story. You were putting money into a 401k, but then you quit your job and travel the world. So obviously you need money for that. Now you're trying to put together this career that's different. Uh, excuse me. Now you've put together this career that is different than, than what it was uh, pr- previously. So there's, I find that in the world of financial planning, there's a real disconnect in the ability for, say, millennials with the life attitude that you just described uh, and uh, financial advisors who are trained to serve a baby boomer generation, I find there's a real disconnect of their ability to communicate with one another. So how, do you, how does this type of approach, this you only live once approach, affect financial planning? How do you incorporate this desire to live now, do it now, while also recognizing the value of saving and investing over a lifetime? Yeah. So I, I, I first, I, I'm sure as people are listening and I get this a lot too, it's like, why did I title it? You only live once. Uh, that, that comes from, uh, our generation's use of YOLO, right? We shorten it up, use the acronym YOLO. And, and that was associated with mindless spending sprees that was associated with just kind of living for the moment without a care to the future. And, as a as as we get older older so we're we're no longer uh, 21 and and careless and many of us are can still be careless in in our 30s uh, we're really understanding the, the the term YOLO as it relates to what it act what it stood for you only live once and that yes we can make unwise financial decisions for the moment that can curtail our ability to enjoy future moments so you only live once is an understanding, it's awareness that, that through sound financial decision making, you can have a lifetime of moments that are positive. So it's not, it's not about saying, okay, well, you know, I need to buy that, that expensive luxury car that I can't afford, but YOLO, um, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves six months later struggling to make the car payment or the insurance payment. Because to me, that's not living um, this one lifetime, uh, and things like that. So I, I really wanted to stress that it wasn't about, uh, this, this consumption and this spur of the moment, uh, decision-making that it's true awareness that you have this one lifetime here on this planet 
and you have the opportunity to make sound financial decisions uh, that can enable you to enjoy a lifetime. And, and so that has truly resonated. It res- has resonated across generations. I mean, I have traditionalists that attend the, the sessions as well as baby boomers who said, I wish I knew this 30, 40 years ago because this aligns with my values today that, um, that there's, there's a balance. There's a balance of saving for the future and, and also enjoying some of the things uh, that you enjoy, whether it is luxury goods or it is uh, experiences. And I found that that speaking with financial advisors and experts who serve the baby boomer generation, um, they're still looking at this tried and true method, right? This method of, of okay, uh, you need to, uh, you, you're buying a home, you need to send these kids to school, you will be retiring at the age of 70. So there are all these benchmarks and it does and then I see it speaking with uh, with those who are retired and follow this traditional financial planning. Um, they get sick because one, there there is no uh, this purpose or uh, to their life for one. So they become ill and they end up passing a few years after retirement. Uh, I had one one individual share that uh, with me that happened to their spouse, and and so what I've noticed and there's a growing shift of advisors and CFPs that are catering to our generation and, and Generation Z and even Generation X, um, that uh, we can do sound financial planning, we can contribute to our retirement, at the same time be able to enjoy uh, the things that, that uh, uh, you know, in our lives that, that make our life worth living, um, that we can look back and say, yes, that was, uh, that was, a, that was a great lifetime of moments. And it really starts with the, the vision for life. And, and when I've sat down with traditional financial advisors, they'll talk to me specifically about my financial goals. And we rarely had a conversation about how those financial goals relate to the vision of the life that I wanted to live. And I was, and I've noticed that I was always pushed to, okay, what's the vision for your retirement? So here I am in my 20s, uh, being told, how do you envision your retirement? What do you hope to be doing when you're 70, when you're unable to walk or you're having pains or, or, and things like that? And I said, this just doesn't resonate. It's like, how am I supposed to, uh, um, to think about something uh, 40, 50 years into the future? And, and, but that's where all the conversations were being steered at, was something down at, at 70 and uh, now I was following this traditional path. And when I shared my story, things weren't working out the way that uh, I'd envisioned in some aspect. And I realized that's like, OK, there, there has to be some type of middle ground. There has to be uh, a way for us to allocate our time and resources on the things that matter, on the things that that I value today. Um, and and then but also to the point where I'm saving for the future and I think of retirement quite differently, um, and I've noticed than, than the majority of people that I do meet out on the road, that retirement is the state in which you are physically unable to exchange your time for a paycheck or for money. So um, I, I meet people who are 70, 80 that are still working, they're, they're still chugging along, and they want to work because, yeah, they get, some, they get some additional cash and they don't necessarily need to because they, they have a great nest egg, but they do it for social reasons. They do it because they wanna 
um, use their time um, as opposed to just sitting around. And and then so I knew that there's that there's that middle ground. And looking back again in my experience, looking back on the things that I purchased uh, and how do they represent my values in terms of the time spent here uh, in this world, I realized that I was like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Um, I can I can spend on the things that matter and I can plan for the future uh, to the point where if I'm physically unable um, to exchange my time for a paycheck, that I have enough um, to, to pay for my living expenses. I have enough to continue to enjoy life. And that was, again, was like one of that, that aha moment. And I thought I was alone in this. And the more that I, that I speak, the more I got into personal finance blogging. And that's what I started doing in 2013, just kind of sharing this. And, and the community started growing. And I started meeting you and, and others uh, like you that, that had this, this different idea that we can, we can spend our money on things that we enjoy. Um, but we have to be really clear. We have to understand, um, uh, like the value in which, uh, they contribute to our life. And, and so that moment, that's, that's how I've been living my life in some degree and just more so in, in the past few years. I want to ask you one more question on this mindset. I want to transition to uh, actually some of the specifics things that you've done and the strategies you've employed to make this work for yourself. There's a listener of my show who is very financially knowledgeable, um, has a young family, uh, and has money in a retirement account. But in considering the age of uh, their children, they're considering uh, pulling out of the workforce for a year and traveling with their family uh, and their children around the country on an RV trip. It's a long-held dream, long-held goal. But in order to finance it, they'd need to choose to withdraw money from their 401k early. Uh, I don't care about the financial cost. Um, this listener is very uh, aware of the costs of penalties and taxes, etc. Uh, what I care about is – so I'm not asking you to, to comment on the advisability of such an action. What I care about is the challenge of prioritizing now versus later. If you were given a, a scenario like I've just described, how would you advise somebody to consider – the advisability of pursuing a short-term goal versus a long-term goal, given that there are costs and benefits to both. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we can we can go and and um, do an analysis, and and I tend to to let to state to people when they're deciding whether or not to to leave a job, um, and then for this instance, leave for a year and go cross country. To, uh, to outweigh the financial cost, uh, the pros and the cons, to outweigh uh, the experiences and what you hope to. Um, and I think uh, at this point, there are ways for you to plan the finances for this year um, as opposed to just kind of going blindly. Um, and, and so for me to kind of give you my strategy and how I left uh, my senior executive job and was able to, to travel for a year uh, without thoughts to finances, and I still had expenses, um, very minimally. Uh, that was one. Um, you know, if if you have this idea, this thought that you want to go away for a year, is to start saving um, to cover the basic living expenses. Uh, so that is definitely a strategy that does work. And and so it's and it's not about saving tons of money. It's saving the amount that you need just to cover the basics, um, and that could that could be um, 
uh, maybe you still have some student loan debt uh, that you need to pay. Maybe there are some credit card debt that that needs to that needs to have uh, that needs to be paid, etc. Um, you have your cell phone bill, uh, so you need to know and calculate how much um, those things are and be able to project. Okay, this is the amount that I need in order for me to cover whatever those basic living expenses are. So housing, food, etc. And the wonderful thing about about that it's not about you're not looking about at income. Uh, you're looking at expenses. And so you have the ability to start cutting things that um, that are eating at your income or your ability to put money into an account uh, that you can use for the entire year. And so for me, I looked at, I was saving for a down payment in a home. And then when I realized I wanted to go backpacking around the world, instead, I used the money that I was saving for this down payment on a home and I paid off the rest of my debt. I mean, I was still carrying student loan debt. I had a bit of credit card debt. Um, and so I used that down payment to pay off the rest of, uh, of that debt. And I looked at my expenses and at that point I let go of, you know, I didn't have my apartment. I sold uh, majority of my things. I think 99% of my things, the cars and, so I had the most minimal expenses um, that you could have uh, on a monthly basis. And that allowed me to, to backpack around the world for an entire year at, at 10000 And so I look at this as you don't want to stress yourself with leaving the workforce, um, going on this, this cross-country adventure, and then coming back and going, what the heck did I just do? <laughs> Um, now I'm stressed because you're not going to look back. And I think of success as the, the ability to look back in time through whatever you've gone through and say, today, I am happy. I am content. I'm in a good place today, regardless of the things that happened. And now if you're coming back from this cross country trip and you're, you've placed yourself in a financial situation, all this uncertainty, this debt, you're not going to be able to look at the, the experience fondly. You're not going to be able to um, have the experiences uh, that you want. And, and so I really encourage people um, to think about the, the various options that they have before leaving a job and then going out traveling the world. Uh, if the company offers a sabbatical, if, the, if, if not and you do decide to leave, that you do, you do some planning. And, and that kind of goes back to financial wellness. Uh, it's the vision, getting clarity of your values, and financial planning. Um, uh, that's a really key component, making sure that those expenses are, are, are paid up. But that's one way. So there are some traditional aspects to kind of doing the non-traditional path. And again, all aimed at uh, being able to enjoy your short-term ter- short goals um, at the same time, not fearing what the future has in store. Jason, you left the job that had a lot of career promise. How do you support yourself financially now since coming back from your trip? So uh, as I mentioned, I did some, uh, uh, some wise financial decision making. I had always contributed. Um, and so uh, let, let me take a step back. Uh, when I was younger, when I was 21 and I, and I joined the workforce, someone sat me down. Um, she was a financial advisor. And she said, Jason, whatever you do, just keep contributing 10% into your 401k. And because I don't care. And she says, I don't care what you do with your money. Just do that. And then for some reason, it was the first financial advice that I, I ever got. 
uh, from at that point someone that I knew was a was an expert and had all these certifications and licenses, and and so I followed I followed that and I contributed ten percent of my four one k, and and then I I dabbled in the the stock market um, and just kind of playing around saying oh, okay well that's that's interesting, and um, so I do have investments um, that that I've held on to uh, through the through the years that are paying off. And in addition, I am a freelance writer. So there are moments where I get an opportunity to write. I'm also become a consultant. Um, and I address uh, millennial uh, issues uh, in the workplace um, and also how to speak our language, um, specifically with fintech companies or financial technology companies, financial services such as credit unions and community banks. Like how do you talk to us in a, in a way that uh, – uh, that you know you understand our value system, you understand how we do prioritize uh, experience over things and how we want to live for the moment but also plan for the future and how we don't want to be sold products and we want to be aligned with, with, uh, with brands that, that, um, that understand, again, our values. And so that's how I'm able to support myself um, through some blogging, through some consultations and, and speaking gigs uh, across the country. Have you ever wondered if you made the right decision? Uh, I can tell you right now, as I mentioned, success is looking back and saying, wow, through all that stuff, I'm content. And um, there hasn't been a moment in the past three years that I've questioned my decision in leaving. Um, and that's because it has been a, a roller coaster ride. And I've realized at this point when we um, when we incorporate sound financial decision making with a very clear uh, focus and purpose, um, I, I don't have time to go. Wow, maybe I should be back in in corporate. But I do want to say I went back to uh, during my road trip across the country where we drove eighteen thousand miles and and had fifty four events. Um, I was back in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and I had three events all across the Bay. And I remember I was in San Jose, California, and I wanted to check the the condo that I wanted to purchase back then in 2011. It was a two-bedroom condo um, at these towers at the new building in downtown San Jose, and it was going for $400,000 back in 2011, right? And so I went and I looked at what the two-bedroom condo was going for. Um, close to $1.25 million. So when, when you're talking about thinking, uh, uh, thinking about, well, maybe uh, did I make the right decision? At that point, I just laugh because um, in a very short period of time, you're looking at that. The value of that condo, if I had purchased it back in 2011, uh, would be three times as much uh, then. But again, at that point, um, I wouldn't have had this clarity of thought. I wouldn't have been clear in terms of uh, money mindset. And I wouldn't have been able to truly understand my relationship with money the, to craft a life of financial well-being and a purposeful one. Final uh, question is always, would you even have sold at that point in time? Because, <laughs> or would you, have, would you have jumped ship? There is definitely a matter of intelligent timing. But sometimes it's easier to jump a little early than a little bit late uh, because you're less... Um, you're less committed. I know when I left, uh, when I left my um, and closed my financial planning business to pursue radical personal finance, there were many factors involved. But one that I did seriously consider was the fact that 
Although it was a very expensive decision for me to leave, I walked away from a lot of, of future income that I had already earned uh, in various deferred compensation arrangements. But uh, I looked at it and said, if it's this hard now, in five years when the numbers are triple, it's going to be a lot harder. And will I really walk away at that point in the future? Now, I think anybody, you, if you count the cost and you decide that you want to make a change, it's, you, you know, you'll make a change no matter what. But golden handcuffs are very real uh, and you get used to certain things. And so I think it's worth factoring that into your uh, decision criteria. Last question I want to uh, bring to you, Jason, here is you just finished this trip that you briefly said, 18,000 miles, 54 stops doing financial wellness seminars. Um, how long were you on the road for that trip? Uh, 107 days. So what's interesting to me about this is it's a good way of showing how when you have an area of interest and an area of focus, you can incorporate work and fun. Uh, so you had a 107-day road trip. Uh, I'm sure a lot of parts of it were difficult and were work, but it was also fun, wasn't it? A- absolutely. Um, you know, I, I got to hike. I got to explore. And I got to eat at really fancy places that you'd see on TV. And, and so it was a lot of fun. And ex- exactly what you said, I, I'm at this stage in my life where I've, I'm, I'm very fortunate through a lot of hard work and timing and, and new networks and connections that I'm able to incorporate the things that I enjoy. So I'm passionate um, about personal finance. I'm passionate about helping others. I'm passionate and, and love traveling and having new experiences. That's what I wanted to do when I would decided to leave corporate and start backpacking around the world. And, and here I am. Um, and, and I think, and I look at myself and I'm like uh, in the mirror and I say, Jason, is this real life? Because I, I now have this opportunity to incorporate all these things that I enjoy into something that generates income and, and serves my purpose. So how did you uh, – what were the financial arrangements for a trip like this? I assume you had a couple sponsors and you were doing some work with a client and then also uh, I think it tied in with your book. Uh, you made, but, but as I – my impression is that you made money on, on this road trip. Is that right? Correct. Um, so I had sponsors who purchased copies of the books um, and also sponsors who paid me to go speak in front of an audience to share the exact uh, – or parts of the story – that just shared with uh, with your listeners, um, yeah, and and so the the majority of my sponsors um, throughout the country were credit unions, and I also worked with USAA. They're kind of they sponsored three of my stops, and but you're looking at thirty stops across the country were sponsored by local credit unions, um, and and also worked with some fintech folks and nonprofit organizations and city organizations all excited about trying to figure out like what makes us tick. Why are we so focused on, on experiences and not just things? And what is this YOLO mentality all about? Um, so yeah, the generosity, uh, of sponsors that align with my vision as well as the mission of the road trip helped make this possible. And, and part of that too, is to ensure that the cost, uh, was covered. It's a really expensive endeavor to spend 107 days on the road as well as host events. So not only did we just show up in a couple places, we hosted events, we found the venue, we, we catered the food and th- things like that. Um, so, but also at, at the, at the point uh, to knowing that, you know, what was the, the value with the time that we spent in, on the road, as well as um, the potential for profit to continue the conversation going forward. 
It is just a cool example, though, of how many things can be done where, where when you get free of some constraints, you can substitute ways to earn income and do something that you care about. Uh, and there are plenty of ways in today's world to, to integrate this with sponsors, et cetera, uh, and really make it happen. Jason, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Tell us about your website. Tell us about the book uh, and any uh, actions that you'd like my audience to take uh, as a result oh. of this interview, please. Awesome. Thank you so much, Josh, for having me on. I truly enjoy this. Uh, for those of you who want to, um, to learn more, you can visit jasonvito.com. Um, just some personal thoughts that I share on, on my personal website. Um, I also do have uh, a Q&A platform, about 65,000 millennials um, sharing financial information, asking questions, and that's frugal.com. That's with a P-H-R-O-O-G-A-L.com. Play on the word frugal. And you want to learn more about the Road to Financial Wellness, that's roadtofinancialwellness.com uh, to learn more about the road as well as about the book and the possibility. And then they'll make that, uh, that, that announcement here for Road Trip 3.0. I was just going to say, what's next? <laughs> possibility, it sounds like. <laughs> well, awesome, man. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radical Personal Finance. If you're interested in building financial freedom for yourself and your family, please subscribe to the podcast with our free mobile app so you don't miss a single episode. Just search the app store on your mobile device for Radical Personal Finance and download our free app, which also contains an archive of every past episode of the show. If you have received value and financial benefit from the content of today's show, please consider becoming a supporting patron. Radical Personal Finance is listener-supported, and it's your direct financial support which enables me to bring you this content. In addition to your voluntarily paying for the content you've just heard, as a supporting patron, you will receive a number of member-only benefits, including a private Facebook group, access to our weekly Q&A calls, and discounts on future products and services. Details can be found at RadicalPersonalFinance.com patron. Again, RadicalPersonalFinance.com patron.